Good morning, everyone. Our topic today is finding God through the Guru. My name is Nayaswami Diksha, and I serve here at the Expanding Light Retreat. And I'd like to start by reading from the autobiography of a yogi, from the chapter, I'm Going to America. This is on the eve of Yogananda's departure to America in 1920, August of 1920, 96 years ago. And he was with his guru, Swami Sri Teshwar, for final blessings. Yukteswar blessed him with these words. All those who come to you with faith, seeking God, will be helped as you look at them. The spiritual current emanating from your eyes will enter into their brains and change their material habits, making them more God conscious. He went on, your lot to attract sincere souls is very good. Everywhere you go, even in the wilderness, you will find friends. So here we are, sincere souls seeking God, following the guidance of Yogananda. On the spiritual path, our greatest test is to overcome the thought that we exist as a separate reality. And as Swami Kriyananda explained it, we cannot will ourselves out of that thought of that delusion, because the very ego that we operate from is already infected with that same delusion. Only a master, one who has attained oneness with God, like Yogananda, can lead us out of this delusion. A few months before Yogananda left his body, Swami Kriyananda asked him, Will you be as close to us after you are gone as you are now? And without hesitation, Yogananda replied, To those who think me near, I will be near. And so I want to talk about how to remain near the Guru, how to cooperate with him, so we can draw his grace. The main way that we can attune ourselves is through inner attunement to the consciousness of the Guru. Because the consciousness of the Guru is one with God, but the human mind is clouded by likes and dislikes, 
and has infinite potential for making mistakes. As, as we attune ourselves with the consciousness of the Guru, our minds start to clear and our consciousness begins to be in alignment with truth, with the consciousness of God. Yogananda talked about attunement as the most important thing that he can give us because through attunement with his consciousness, he can inspire us with the right understanding and the right decision in every situation. Swami Krinanda said that everything that he was able to create in his life came to him through his attunement with Yogananda. When Swami would look into Yogananda's eyes, he said it was like catching a glimpse into infinity. I remember some years ago, I watched a movie, a movie that conveyed the harsh reality and the sufferings of the people of Afghanistan. It was an easy movie to watch, and later that night, I had a hard time sleeping. And the next morning, as I sat to meditate, my heart was so agitated, I couldn't meditate. And so I prayed to Yogananda for help. And after a while, I heard a voice inside of me that said, Cut the cord. Watch the breath. And that inner voice woke me up as if from a dream. I was hypnotized by the sufferings in this world. And so I tried to cut the cord, to withdraw my energy inward, but it wasn't easy. I had to use all my willpower. And finally, I was able to detach myself, to withdraw my energy inward and upward, to watch the breath and to calm down. And later, I read in the writings of Yogananda about soul nervousness, that when the soul is so attached to the body, to the senses, it forgets its true nature. And only through the practice of meditation, we can reverse, we can transfer the attention from the sensations of the body to the infinite nature of our true self. In one of the poems that Yogananda wrote, which he called, I'm Lonely No More, he ends this poem with these words. Away from myself, I was lonely. But since my little self met the big self, I'm lonely no more. The Guru is our big self. He is inside of us. 
trying to help us to realign ourselves with that which is real and that which is true. And so how do we attune ourselves to the Guru? Yogananda answered this. He said, Gaze deeply at a photograph of the Guru and especially concentrate on his eyes. And then, as you meditate, focus on the spiritual eye and visualize his eyes gazing at you and call to him, reveal thyself. Reveal thyself. And then try to feel his response in your heart. We can also pray to Yogananda to guide us. And especially to pray to him to give us the power to grow spiritually. I remember some years ago, a woman came to the expanding light to take the month-long yoga teacher training. She was a devout Catholic, yet she was very receptive to the teachings of Yogananda. And towards the end of her stay, she became very anxious about going back to the big city where she lived. And so, in one of her meditations, she prayed to Jesus and asked him, how can I go back home and leave this heavenly place of Ananda? And she heard Jesus' voice saying to her, stay close to me. And this is what we need to do if we want to receive the grace of the Guru to stay close to him. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says to Arjuna, Cling thou to me. Clasp me with heart and mind. And so not only in meditation, but in daily life. We need to keep Yogananda's presence in our hearts. To ask him for guidance in everything. To ask, to listen, and to try to cooperate with him. We can make him our divine partner. We can share with him our thoughts, our questions, our needs. And especially when we go through tests, we need to stay very close to the Guru, to Yogananda. As he himself said, be in tune. And when things get difficult, be more in tune. The Guru will not take our test away, but he can transmit to us the power to overcome. And we can break the barrier of doubt, of disbelief, and magnetize the power of the Guru through our endless efforts, through our devotion, 
and to our faith in him. We can also attune to the Guru through studying his teachings, through meditating on his words. You can choose phrases that are especially meaningful to you. Meditate on them. Try to perceive their essence. And then try to bring them creatively into your daily life. I remember one morning I was meditating with my husband Gandhi and he finished his meditation earlier than me and he went to the kitchen to make hot cereal. I continued to meditate and then at the end I read a paragraph from the writings of Yogananda and there was one sentence that especially spoke to me that morning when Yogananda wrote no one can ever make me feel that they are not a part of me so beautiful so I read it again and again tried to absorb it and then I finished my meditation. As I stepped out of the meditation room, I felt that something, I smelled something was burning. <laughs> so I went to the kitchen and I saw the pot that Gandhi cooked the cereal burnt. He wasn't there at that moment. <laughs> but he later explained to me that when he was cooking the cereal, he got a phone call and went to the other room, forgot about the cereal. But at that moment, when I was gazing at that burnt pot and smelling it, I could feel the judgment forming in my heart. But the inspiration was still with me. No one can ever make me feel that they are not a part of me. And that inspiration led me to the thought, Gandhi is a part of me. I could have done this. And immediately, that judgment dissolved. And sure enough, a month later, I burned the same pot. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and so, as we heard before, on the spiritual path, we need to become spiritual scientists. We need to experiment. We need to test the validity of the teachings in our own lives. Yogananda shared an example of perfect cooperation of a disciple and the grace of the Guru. In India, Swami Shankara was standing on one side of the river his disciple was standing on the other side of the river. And the guru gently called the disciple, come over here. Now most people would have looked around for a boat to cross the river. But this disciple, without hesitation, put his foot on the water. And the moment he did so, a lotus leaf appeared under his foot and supported it. And with every successive step, 
that he took, another another leaf appeared, and he was able to quickly cross to the other side of the river. And from then on, he became known as Padmapada, which means lotus feet. And so we can attune ourselves to Yogananda by practicing the meditation techniques, by studying his teachings, by keeping his presence in our hearts. As we cooperate with him freely with his consciousness, freely, willingly, with an open heart, we begin to experience him as a living reality. He is our divine friend, an unseen friend that help us to dissolve that consciousness of feeling separated and is helping us to experience more and more an inward sense of self-expansion until we attained oneness with God. So I wanted to end by reading a few paragraphs from an essay that Swami Kriyananda wrote during the last part of his life. This is from the essay called Why I Love My Guru, Paramahansa Yogananda. When I met him, he said to me, I give you my unconditional love. No treasure could be greater, surely, than that sacred promise. He has fulfilled it in countless ways. More and more through the years, I have found him mentally guiding me, leading me toward final inner freedom, filling me with inner bliss. I love my guru as he himself wrote about his own guru, Swami Shri. Shuyukteshwar is the spoken voice of silent God. He was ever, and is now more than ever, my nearest, dearest companion. If I'm right, I feel his inner smile. If I'm wrong, I feel his inner encouragement to do better. He is on my side in every struggle against delusion. Could anyone be a better, truer friend than that?
For those of you who don't know me, I am Brahmachari Kamran. And before I start, I just wanted to thank the beautiful singers and musicians from last night for that amazing concert and also for Swamiji's um, vibration through the commentary on the songs. I think when people sing at Ananda, it's really, really easy to see their divinity shining through them and the veil kind of gets thin. But uh, really, looking around this audience and just meeting people during Spiritual Renewal Week, it's really easy to see the divinity in everybody, I think. When everybody comes together for spiritual renewal and you see people who have dedicated their lives to this path, to the guru-disciple relationship for 40, 50 years, for 20 years or 10 years, and for some of us maybe five years or a few years, but the guru can really change us and he can transform us if we let him, as Diksha said, if we cooperate, if we offer ourselves up. Um, I used to think that angels came from heaven, but I'm pretty sure that's not where they come from now. I know they end up in heaven, but I think they're made here, or rather they're forged here. And in in India, in Italy, in Mexico, in wherever there's a meditation group, Ananda meditation group, wherever there are disciples, wherever there are searchers for truth, I think Master is forging disciples. He's forging angels. And, you know, a lot of us like to think of the guru-disciple relationship and of master. We like to think of ourselves as devotees, as chelas, as children at the feet of God. But the root word of discipleship is discipline. And, of course, when you think about the autobiography of a yogi and you think about discipline, who comes to your mind? It's not Babaji or Christ. It's not Lahiri, it's not Master. Master's the disciple. It's Sri Yukteswarji. But hopefully I can help Sri Yukteswarji today a little bit um, and dispel some of the wrong thinking about his sternness. And he was stern. Um, but, you know, Master said if Sri Yukteswarji was better understood, better appreciated, he would have been the most sought-after guru in all of India. But so many people were approaching him from the ego perspective and not from spiritual self-interest. And I'm so glad that a lot of people have been bringing the yugas into our perspective when we talk about autobiography of a yogi. For many of us, it's such a treasure because it carries master's vibration. But really for the world, this book is a portal through which we can truly start to understand Dwapara Yuga spirituality and through which we can start to understand as disciples, as truth seekers, as God seekers, the correct attitudes and the correct discipline to approach our guru, to approach God. And, you know, we're still sort of trying to get rid of that, that tinge, that haze of Kali Yuga, and especially when we think of discipline, at least for me, actually, when I think of discipline, I think of that, maybe you're familiar with this arcade game, it's called Whack-A-Mole. <laughs> maybe some of you don't know it, but um, it's a very simple game. You ha- there's this big board, this big Kali Yuga board, and then there's these little holes, these little black holes, and these little demonic gophers pop out of it, moles, and then they're like these little temptations and desires and samskars and they pop up their head and in Kali Yuga the way we deal with it is we take this huge mallet and whack, whack, whack and then then all of our karma goes away 
At least that's how I used to think about discipline. And I love St. Francis, but if I had to throw myself on a rose bush or a blackberry bush every time I had a bad thought or a temptation, I don't think I'd get any work done. I think I'd be rolling in blackberry bushes all day. So I'm glad to be in Dwapara Yuga. And I'm trying to re-understand what is Dwapara Yuga discipline. And uh, Jyotish recommended to read the Yuga's book, and many speakers have. I also recommend it. It really changed the way I, th- I think about the spiritual path. I read it early on when I was coming on the path. And uh, Byasa and Puru, the authors, describe three attributes to the consciousness of Dwapara Yuga. They describe self-interest, a newly found self-interest, awakened intellect, and energy awareness. And we can apply this to ourselves, not just as participants of Dwapara Yuga, but as spiritual truth seekers and as disciples in Dwapara Yuga. And when you, you know, like I said, Sri Yukteswarji might not be the most approachable guru in the AY, but really he is the Dwapara Yuga uh, role model. He's the one who brings East and West together. And although Master brought the teachings to us in a sweeter way, a much more approachable way, Sri Yukteswarji in that book is our model. And I'm going to read a few Yukteswar quotes, but again, let's not think about discipline in Kali Yuga. Let's move to Dwapara Yuga. So um, the three qualities of Dwapara Yuga are, again, um, so, uh, self-interest, awakened intellect, and energy awareness. And for the disciple, uh, self-interest means, of course, spiritual self-interest. We approach, approach the guru because he's promised to give us moksha in this lifetime if we put the effort into our practice. Um, Yukteswar and Master, when they first meet, have an argument for over an hour because Master wants his guru to promise that he will reveal God. Otherwise, what's the point of discipleship? And after they, I can't imagine arguing with Yukteswar, but Master was, had willpower too. And so finally, Yukteswar said, okay, I promise. And then he, took, then he said, okay, I'll be your disciple. And later, after some of the stern practices during the years in his guru's hermitage, Master said this about his guru. For every humbling blow he dealt my vanity, for every tooth in my metaphorical jaw he knocked loose with stunning aim. I am grateful beyond any facility of expression. The hard core of human egotism is hardly to be dislodged except rudely. With its departure, the divine finds at last an unobstructed channel. In vain, it seeks to percolate, percolate through flinty hearts of selfishness. And so unless we start to see discipline as something that is not, it's not discipline in itself. The guru doesn't, doesn't care whether we obey him or not in one sense. He just wants to bring us to God. And if we really want to change, if we really want to transform, if we really want to become angels in this life, we can. We just have to ask for the guru to discipline us, which also means to guide us, to shape us and sculpt us and transform us. Uh, second Dwapara Yuga priority. For spiritual seekers, for the disciple, discipline has to be methodical and balanced. And this is where Sri Yukteswarji really shines. Master says, Discipline had not been unknown to me. At home, father was strict. Ananta often severe. But Sri Yukteswarji's training cannot be described as other than drastic. (laughs) 
a perfectionist. My guru was hypercritical of his disciples, whether in matters of moment or in the subtle nuances of behavior. And then Master goes on to list his faults. Uh, Yukteswar didn't really criticize Master's spiritual progress, so I guess he was meditating. Okay. Master said, My chief offenses were absent-mindedness, intermittent indulgences in sad moods, non-observance of certain rules of etiquette, and occasional unmethodical ways. His guru said, Observe how the activities of your father, Bhagavati, are well organized and balanced in every way. And we're not in Treta Yuga yet. We are in Dwapara Yuga. And so even though this path of discipleship is about deep self-offering and inviting the guru into our lives on every level to train us and shape us and transform us, we also have to take that offering and build our spiritual lives around a deep commitment through deep action, uh, through our jobs, through our work, through our choices of where we want to live and what we want, everything we want to do. We have to stay practical with our idealism. We have to be methodical and scientific with our yoga practice. And we have to bring in that beautiful blend of East and West as disciples of this path and disciples in Dwapara Yuga. And the third priority, disciples in Dwapara Yuga, of course, practice energy awareness. And this doesn't just mean our meditation practice and our ability to feel energy in the body and feel God as energy in the body and the spine and especially at the spiritual eye. But of course, this also means our ability to feel as Diksha so beautifully said, the Guru's presence guiding us from within. If we were in Kali Yuga, we would have the enormous task of changing ourselves through every mood, every thought, every feeling, every deficiency. But in Dwapara Yuga, we get to work with energy. And this goes along with what Diksha said, but it's through, through Shri Yukteswar, so let's see what he has to say. Master says, My guru was a peerless interpreter of the scriptures. Many of my happiest memories are centered in his discourses, but his jeweled thoughts were not cast into ashes of heedlessness or stupidity. One restless movement of my body or my slight lapse into absent-mindedness sufficed to put an abrupt period to Master's exposition. You are not here, Master interrupted himself one afternoon with this disclosure. As usual, he was keeping track of my attention with devastating immediacy. Guruji, my tone was a protest. I have not stirred. My eyelids have not moved. I can repeat each word you have uttered. Nevertheless, you were not fully with me. And so unless, unless we learn to feel on a deep level Master's guiding presence, both His love, but also through that love, His wish for us to change. And when we pray, Master change me, change not my circumstances. We're inviting him into our very thoughts, our feelings, every nuance of our behavior, every mote of energy in our spine becomes master's responsibility. But again, in Dwapara Yuga, unless we're able to first offer ourselves through affirming our own divinity, through our own spiritual self-interest, and then after that offering to build step-by-step in a scientific, forward-moving manner, our spiritual lives, and then to surrender fully to that process, fully to the Guru's ability to work with us on the most subtle levels. 
And that's where I think the true discipline of discipleship happens. After we've dedicated our lives outwardly, then we practice for many years even the inward dedication, the inward discipleship. And that's where Master has such an amazing power. And years go by and you look in the mirror and you're just not there anymore. And Master has changed you. Um, But even still, there are some practical applications of discipline in this life, physical discipline. But it's almost more helpful for the Dwapara Yogi to work with those in the background. And the more we focus on energy, the more we're, I think we're doing okay. You know, I went to a psychic once out of curiosity, and I'm kind of a skeptical person, so I actually gave her some misinformation, and I didn't... <laughs> I gave her a fake name and told her I lived somewhere that I didn't and told her some other things that weren't quite true. But then she got in her spine and she told me my name. She told me where I lived. She told me who I was. And she said, now I'm going to tell you about your past lives. And I said, oh, okay. I don't really have a choice at this point. And she said, for many past lives... You have been a soldier, and you have fought in tremendous battles, and you have marched on long, hard journeys, and you ate very little, and you slept very little, and your life was austere. And I said, oh, that's cool. That doesn't sound like fun. Uh, Are there any other past lives you want to tell me about? And she said, yes, for many past lives. You were a monk in the monastery, behind the monastery walls, and you prayed in the intense heat and the intense cold, and you slept on the hard rocks where your bed, and you ate very little, and you slept very little, and your life was austere. And I was getting a little nervous at that point. And I was saying, don't you have, like, aren't there past lives where, like, I was on a beach and there was food? And she said, yes. For many past lives, you traversed the great American wilderness and you seldom spoke and you seldom mixed with people and you ate very little and you slept very little and your life was austere. And I said, oh, that's why I don't like Kali Yuga discipline. I think so many of us have done that and just like that whack-a-mole game, that form of discipline is repetitious inappropriate and futile, really. (laughs) You can never win that game. And so when we think about Dwapara Yuga and we think about discipleship, we think about we're here to find God. We're here to build our lives around that desire to find God. And we're here through meditation and yoga practice to offer up every last drop of who we are, all that we've been, all that we are, all that we'll ever be. And, you know, in some ways, to summarize Dwapara Yuga discipline, I think, is really just a practice of, like I said, affirming our own divinity and looking into Master's eyes or Sri Yukteswar's eyes and just saying, there's nothing left here. It all belongs to you. Do with me what you will. And, you know, I'd like to close, actually, with a reading that I think summarizes this kind of crystallized version of what it means to be a disciple and that our only real discipline is looking into God's eyes and as many times as the world pulls us away, as many times as we're distracted or pulled down by our past bad actions, we discipline ourselves 
to keep his gaze, to stay in his aura, to stay in his presence. And through that simple discipline of just staying at the spiritual eye, staying in God's presence, he'll do all the work. That really is our only responsibility in this life. And the book that I want to close with was actually written, the first draft of this book was written within a year or two of when, it was really written at the same time that the autobiography of a yogi was written. Um, This book is The Land of Golden Sunshine. And it was first written, I think, Swamiji says, when he was about 18 years old. So that puts it maybe at 1943, 1944, when Master was writing the AY. And um, Swamiji said, along with this book, his music, but really nothing else that he's done or expressed, really captures who he is on the inside. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Um, But I'd like to close with reading just one section at the end where Lisa, our spiritual hero, who is not just... Swamiji's self self expression, but also let's maybe just take a moment to sit up straight and close our eyes. And as I read this, imagine that for so many past lives, through spiritual effort, God has come to us again and again, but each time we weren't quite ready. We weren't quite ready to give everything. We weren't quite ready to surrender. And now in this life, we are ready. And When God comes, our only discipline is not to turn away and to look him in the eyes and say, I love you, I'm ready. So this is from the end of this book, The Land of Golden Sunshine. Sunday came, it was late when Lisa woke, and the sun was high, though this time unobscured by any cloud. Light already filled the room with a glory well-nigh unendurable. The girl's heart swelled as if in rising a silent hymn of faith and hope. Minutes passed. Then a cloud-like shape drifted downward in the golden shaft. Slowly the misty figure once again took shape, and there he stood. To Lisa he seemed more than ever divinely beautiful. As she knelt before him, the city ceased for her to exist. The miracle of his presence was all she now knew. She felt she had been born into a wonderful, into the only true life. The sun man, however, smiled sadly, as he had the last time. I have asked so many, he said. Almost all have refused. Will you too, with burdened heart, turn back to your cold, unfeeling city? Is the power of love too great for your weak heart also to bear? Alas, was that it? Was it love she had feared, not the betrayal of her duty? Considering anew her heart's dilemma, she saw now that the city cared for her not at all, was incapable of love for her, was incapable of love. How then, by leaving it, could she betray it? And what was her highest duty, if not to love itself? I love thee, she whispered. Let all that I know and am be drowned in the ocean of pure love. No, she continued, I am not afraid. Love only is life. Without love, all else is death. The sunlight, stealing once more slowly across the floor, enveloped her once again in a blaze of glory. But this time she welcomed it, the more so because it encircled also him. She knew that now that she belonged to that light and that light to her, that whatever was outside of it no longer pertained to her. Fearlessly, she gazed into the full brilliance and the shaft of light moved on slowly across the empty room. God bless you all.
Let's all stand and stretch. And let's be seated. There are some stories in the autobiography Yogi that have always moved me from the very beginning when I first read the book. And they relate to Master Paramahansa Yogananda with his guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar. And the first one is his meeting with Swami Sri Yukteswar. And this happened when he was Mukunda, the youthful 17-year-old. He was staying in Benares. He was part of an ashram, the Mahamandel Hermitage, with another spiritual teacher. And things, as we've read in the book, don't go well for him there. Um, the discipline that um, Kaman was referring to was more the emphasis rather than the actual touching of God. And he was always being criticized by his fellow ashramites uh, for not spending enough time on the organizational parts of it. And in agony, he prayed that something come forward to bring a change in his life. And then this womanly voice came to him and said, Thy master cometh today. And then he heard from Habu uh, saying, Hey, Mukunda, we have to go on an errand. Come downstairs now. And they went off to do the errands in Benares. And as he was walking by this lane... If you remember the story, he saw this Christ-like man at the end of the road. And it reminded him of what he had saw in the visions that he had had countless times of this sage that had this aura to him. And yet his doubts assailed him and said, No, you're confusing this with some other person. Dream on, walk on. And he walked on, and then ten minutes later something in him reminded him of the deep truth that was there. And that's when, if you remember the story, his feet would no longer move going in that direction. And when he turned around to go in the direction of where he saw this sage, his feet moved. And he piled his packages on Habu's arms and went on. And then he came to that lane, and at the end of the road was Sri Tishwar. And he walked towards him quickly, and he said to him, Guru Deva. And Shrikashwar's words back to him are, were, At last you have come. I have waited many years for you. And then silence ensued. They were just in that unspoken breath of God. And then Shrikashwar, hand in hand, walked Yogananda, Mukunda, to the residence he was staying in, in Benares. And out on the balcony overlooking the Ganges, Sri Tishwara says to Master Mukunda, I will give you my hermitages and all my possessions. And Master says to him, But I have come for wisdom and God contact. Those are your treasure troves that I seek. And then another pause, a longish pause. And Swami Sri Tishwara says to him, I will, love, I will love you unconditionally. And Master says, and then he says, will you give me the same unconditional love? And Master says, 
I will love you eternally, Gurudev. Very powerful. You can see it still moves me. But in that experience, we feel the touch of that guru-disciple relationship as touching God through love. And then another story in the autobiography relates to the same encounter at the very end of Sri Teshwar's life. It's in December of 1935. And Yogananda is a grown man, as he said, with some gray hairs on his head. And this is just before Yogananda goes off to the Kumbha Mela in Allahabad. And just a few months before Sri Teshwar leaves his body. And he comes to him in Sarampur, you know, his ashram outside of Calcutta. And he arrives with flowers and fruits for, as gifts for his guru. And Sri Teshwar says, so what is it that you want? <laughs> and, and Master says these very sweet words. He says, you know, I know your love for me has always been there, but it's always been inwardly. And only once in your life have you said, I love you outwardly to me. And that's the story I just related to you. And my, ear, my mortal ears ache to hear you say it again. And Sri Trishwara says, but do I have to bring out to the cold light of day something that should be protected in the inner sanctums of the heart? And he says, I love you always. And Master says, your answer is my passport to heaven. Very sweet, very sweet. You know, when I first read the autobiography of a yogi, that I was very touched by it, but being slow, I didn't connect the dots and really come onto this spiritual path. I'd been meditating since I was 18, and uh, with another technique, another approach that was technique-oriented. But... Um, I read the autobiography when I was 19, going on 20, and it deeply touched me. It, it was an amazing experience. But as I said, I was probably thick-headed at the time, or I, I just couldn't take the steps to connect the dots to tune into Master in a more direct way. But I held them in a very dear way, in a very sweet way. And from the beginning, I always was drawn to the photograph of Yogananda, the one that we refer to as the last smile, the one that was taken an hour before he left his body when he went to Masamadi on March 7th, 1952. But I always had that in my mind. It was in my awareness, uh, even though I wasn't using the techniques that, that Yogananda taught. I, even in my meditations, I would draw as... Um, Diksha was talking about looking into the eyes of Master from that photograph. It was very deep. I mean, I read the autobiography a number of times, even to the point where I bought a hardcover edition because I knew I'd be reading it frequently. And then finally, something caused me to wake up a little bit more and tune into that Master Yogananda was much more real in a, in a real way to be a part of uh, uh, through Ananda. And I took my version of a long bus ride, just as Swami Kriyananda did. His was longer. Mine was only 64 hours from Canada to here. And I arrived on a very hot, much hotter day than today in July of 1978. And when I arrived, it was um, there was a farmhouse down at what's the entrance to Ananda now. And there was a white 
picket fence around this very grassy green area. And there were some 60 people doing energization on that lawn. This is all part of the apprenticeship program that my dear friend Prakash was leading at that time. And uh, I remember walking on the grounds. I had to hitchhike the last 30, 40 miles to get here. And I remember walking on the property and feeling deep resonance in my soul that this is my spiritual home. And I, I distinguished that it wasn't necessarily the physical place that was causing that that deep response. It was the spiritual vibration that was here. And then for the next few days, I was just enthralled to be in an environment, as you all have been, where people were here to find God. People were tuning into Yogananda. People were living the teachings. They were meditating. I mean, going to group meditations for me here was just, as P.G. Woodhouse would say, the bee's knees. It was just... Just so touching and deep. I remember I'd never meditated for more than really an hour at a time. And every Saturday morning, uh, we got the fast all day Saturday. I think it was to help the economy of the program. And, um, but we, um, we had a three-hour meditation in the little farmhouse. It had a little temple. And I remember it was getting up at 430 energizing and doing yoga postures from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m., and then doing the three-hour meditation till 9 o'clock with no breakfast ensuing after that because it was a fast day. And I just thought, I don't know if I can do three hours. But I felt, I know Master to some degree. I know this is possible. I'm going to venture into this exploration of this. And they were thrilling. Uh, Thrilling in the sense that I didn't meditate deeply, but I felt the touch. Uh, you know, at the end of it, I felt sometimes I survived. <laughs> but I survived with Master. And that was very real. But just after a few days of being here, I had pitched my tent. None of these buildings existed of the Expanding Light Campus. All that was there when I arrived in July of 1978 was the cement pad for the 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 main building up there. There were no other buildings. Well, there were a few outhouses, so, but there was no buildings. And my tent was pitched. If you go on the other side of what's now the guest services building, that's where I pitched my tent. And I remember, so this is a few days afterwards, and sleeping that night in my tent, that I was semi-awakened by this feeling of this very heavy, intense, dark energy coming over me. Very real. Very strong. And I knew this was not a good thing. But it was persistent. It wasn't like it was a passing thing. And because I tuned into Master so much in visualizing that photograph of what I said the last mile, it immediately came to my awareness. And the, the darkness, this heaviness, this intense evil spirit, in a sense, um, receded. It dissipated. It didn't go instantaneously, but it receded and went away. And it was like it cleared the air. And I was able to go back to sleep immediately, just feeling this blessing. And I thought that was it. It was done. The next night, it happened again. But you know what happened then? I woke up laughing with Master. I literally woke up out of my sleep laughing 
knowing that Master was there, nothing could touch me. But just that sense of the lightness of Master. And really what I felt at that point was that deep, unconditional love of Master bringing me to the Divine. And then a number of years later, quite a few years later, uh, Parvati and I were making a transition. Um, we've moved around with Ananda a lot, been in many of our communities and centers and so forth. And this is one transition where we were moving back here to be here at the village again. And I was taking on a situation of serving that had a lot of responsibility. And I knew that coming into it, and I was happy to take that on. I thought I was happy to take that on. Um, But after a few weeks, I actually just felt a deep inadequacy of being able to do it. Um, So much where I remember, again, at night, this time I wasn't asleep. I was trying to get to sleep, and that was difficult. But I just felt, you know, I'm not really that capable of doing this. Um, And I thought of all the solutions, that if I could do this other person's job, they could do mine, and went through a list of possibilities and thought that one of these things should work. Uh, And then I, of course, realized, like most of us, that dharma is dharma. And I know this was a test to, to make me grow and not to squash me. But again, there was a sense of that hopelessness um, that I wasn't up to par to do this. And then just out of somewhere, and obviously it was my soul call, and in my heart, I just said silently, I love you, Master. And again, that love really just changed everything. It opened my heart up. It made me feel, hey, even if you fail in the outward activity, you have my love. It doesn't matter if you succeed outwardly. You're here to find God, and that finding of God has to supersede everything else. And of course, then it became a real nice adventure for me to do that mission, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it over the next couple of years. And then we went off to some other mission. But, uh, but this idea that the love of God and the love of God in us through the guru. Because some of us here aren't on this path. Perhaps perhaps you're new, and perhaps you haven't felt the draw necessarily that Yogananda or a line of gurus is your path. And that's fine. But the same applies universally through any true guru, that we will be led to feeling the depth of that love. You know, when we have that love, we will be transformed. And at one point, Swami Kriyananda, in quoting Yogananda, said that actually it's a better way to open up to God through the joy of His love rather than just His love. And he said, because the nature of who we are as human beings being incarnated, we can sometimes default to approaching God through just the human love. A wonderful way to begin, a wonderful, incredible way to be touched. But we have to go beyond that. And so the expression of enjoying the joy of love of God allows us to be in that combination of the bliss and the love, and that love has that purity. 
and that love in the guru is the love of God. And when we have that, nothing can stand in front of us and block our way. Many obstacles will come. And indeed, as we grow, as we know, as we grow more deep on the spiritual path, the more difficult challenges arrive at our doorstep. That's the guarantee, because they are the ways that we're going to grow deeper in that love, where it's unrestrained. It just is that joy of love without any qualifications, without any conditions. And so I'd like you to close your eyes and sit upright, and I'd like to read to you a poem of Master's. And just feel in your heart that touch of the joy of love from God and from the Guru. And as these words come to you, feel they are a personal touch in elevating you into that unconditional joy of love. So these are the words of Master. When I take the vow of silence to remain enclosed with my beloved, in the arms of his everywhereness, I shall be busy listening to a symphony of creation's bliss songs and beholding hidden wondrous visions. Yet I shall not be oblivious of you all. I shall mutely watch you walking over me in the fresh grass blades and seeing me in my living leafy presences. I shall behold you with mothering tenderness through every crimson blossom that wears a blush of love to bring you delight. I shall caress you with the enfolding breeze to relieve your worries and fears and enwrap you in sun warmth when the chill of delusive loneliness strays into your heart. When you gaze at the ocean, you will be looking right at me united with my beloved on the altar of the horizon, sky canopied with silver rays over the azure wavy hazy sanctuary. I shall not speak except through your reason, nor scold except through your conscience. I shall persuade, persuade only through your love and your heart's longing to seek the beloved only. I shall tempt you but with the sole temptation to enjoy the Beloved's love alone. Forget me if you will, but not my Beloved. Remembering him, you cannot forgive me. Jai Guru. to share the platform with all of you and to stand where so many great souls have stood all week and have stood for so many years. <clears throat> my name is Asha and I lived here at the beginning of my spiritual life and for the last more than almost 30 years now I've been in Palo Alto. Um, but it's all been just one big story and different. Uh, the backdrop changes but the story stays the same. I was... Uh, touch that Kamran chose to read from the land of golden sunshine, um, which Swami described as of all his writings, even including the path, the most autobiographical. And uh, recently we had the opportunity to, uh, we staged it, 
we have in our community a man named Marcel Hernandez who's quite uh, has been professional in his previous incarnations and this incarnation and has great imagination with theater and he just saw this uh, what turned out to be a lovely production which you can find on the internet and uh, I and Ram Murti it, it was pantomimed and the only voice was Ram Murti and me um, reading the whole poem and then interspersed with appropriate music and so on and uh, I have a certain facility with words, so I'm not that easy to coach. <laughs> but Marcel, you know, his professionalism and his sensitivity was way past mine. So for Ramorte and I both, it was a wonderful experience. Because as we would read for him, he, would, he could hear in us, on subtle levels that we weren't aware of, what, were, what we were resisting in what we were reading. And the, the plot of that story, Kamran uh, mentions the finale, where little Lisa, who represents the soul, Lisa, thrice visited by the golden sun man, in her barren little room, in her lonely little life, this beautiful being comes to her and invites her to leave everything behind and go with him. And she's, she's thrilled to see him, But when he comes too close, she remembers herself and she closes up. So twice she shrinks from him and she doesn't know if he's going to come for the third time. How many times can I fail and have God still ask me? So in the story, there is the third time. She awakens in the same beautiful light as there and the sun man comes. And this time she goes with him. And then the story, and then the light moves across the empty room. You know, when you stage it, you do all these other things, but just the bare words are enough. Well, when I was having trouble reading this in a way that was satisfactory to Marcel, I realized that I didn't have a lot of respect for Lisa. It's like, come on, girl. (laughs) You got nothing going on, and all this is coming to you. It was very deep. It was very subtle. But of course, that's how it always is with all of us, where we exist on all these different levels at the same time. And especially if we're good with words, you know, we have the whole story. I can tell, we can tell the story. We know what we're supposed to feel. We can find the passage in the book. But when that light really comes over us, Do we actually have the capacity in that moment to forget everything but that light? Or do all these other things that we don't even know are there, vrittis in the spine, those nasty little vrittis that just take so much of our energy and just keep it whirling? And uh, the experience of that production, for me personally, this is Swami's story. And he's also telling us, you know, in what incarnation, who knows, that, that we always have to be finding more courage. And it isn't enough just to be able to explain it well. It's like when, when it really comes to it, what are we going to do? I've often contemplated the words to the song, and people often ask, that we sing at the Festival of Light, Long we feared to face your love lest our emptiness it prove. And, and the logical mind says, 
just like I was feeling about Lisa. If it's just emptiness, why wouldn't you run right to it? But that emptiness is familiar. And there's also this great force. You can call it Maya. You can call it society. In Lisa's wonderful story, she works in a button shop, and I mean in a, a shirt shop, and they sew buttons on men's shirts. And God bless these women in our production of it. Their job was to just look horrible. And we just had rehearsal after rehearsal in which they just had to... And they, they did it marvelously. You know? Just like frighteningly. They were frighteningly good at it. But that was what represented for her. It was all of these expectations. You know, the expectations of the city in the last line. If you haven't read it as many times as I have, you wouldn't have heard all that. The city cared for her not at all, was incapable of love. And that's the interesting phrase, incapable of love. Because we're always holding out on some level that something else is going to do it. Because that sacrifice from this side seems too much. The last book that Swami wrote was Love Perfected Life Divine. Life Divine. Love Love Perfected Life Divine. And uh, it's a rewrite of a novel about soulmates and the original author didn't understand it on the level Swamiji did so he rewrote the book because the story was so beautiful. Um, When I was in India the last time I was there I had access to a, um, a recording studio and I recorded uh, Love Protected Life, Love, <laughs> Life, whatever it is, the book about the miracles and prayers. I get them all mixed up because they're all done at the same time. So I got to read all those stories, and then I had just more time. And I decided I would make an audio book out of uh, Love Perfected Life Divine because, the, uh, because Swami died before he could do it, and also because it's a heroine. It has to be a female voice. It was an insane thing for me to do. There are like 25 characters in there, and... And all these Scottish places. I have one friend who shall remain nameless who's from Scotland, and please don't ever say anything to me about how I pronounce those names. It was just ghastly because I just sh- they just showed up. So I sat in the corner of this studio all by myself, and there was a recording engineer who didn't speak a lot of English out on the other side, and I was just there for like two days or three days. I just read every page of that book. Nobody listens to it. It doesn't really matter. <clears throat> That's the story. <clears throat> Could I have the water? Thank you. <clears throat> That's the story of Long I Feared to Face Your Love. Because it's the story of the woman, and in this case it's about soulmates, but it's about pure love and the courage to accept it. And so the motivation in the story, which Swami endorses um, metaphysically, is that her soulmate had become more advanced than her, and he was waiting for her, and then she had to uh, rise to his level if she was ever going to be with him. And there was nothing he could do to help her. And she goes to a guru, and then she has to face test after test after test after test, the last is she has to walk through she has to she has to have the courage to hurl herself into the abyss 
Um, she has to uh, face a horrible death and not cringe from it. And then the last, she has to, there's the light in front of her, and simultaneously with the light is fire. And, you know, it's easy if you've read the end of the story to say, sure, you know, God is going to rescue me. It's quite something else to be on this side of the fire. And, you know, can I do it? And, I mean, I'm there, you know, just like, can I do it? I'm turning page after page, just going through that whole experience. You know, can I do it? And... Where the guru comes into our life is that everything else, I mean, nothing else will ever stay with us. It's so hard to believe that. And But there is. When Swami was talking about love perfected, life divine, and talking about soulmates, I believe this is either in the introduction or on the back of the book, he said, every single desire that we have must be fulfilled. That's the divine law. Even though it feels like this world is designed to disappoint us eternally, it's actually just the opposite. It's designed to fulfill us eternally. So what we're longing for is a true longing. We make a mistake to think about how it's going to be fulfilled, but, but we don't make a mistake in having that longing. And, and that's the subtle line of faith that we always, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, is to realize it's not that, that the promise that just lives in my heart is false. It's that I haven't yet found the way it's going to come. And so Swami just said, he said, everyone has a longing to be loved. And he said, not just impersonally by God, but personally, for yourself. You know, someone who really knows you. And then he talked about soulmates, not romantic. I mean, romantic is the mistake. Not that love can't be romantic, because Radha Krishna are right there. It's one of the classic bobs. Mother, father, friend, and beloved is also one of the ways in which we can love God. That's the whole Radha Krishna story, because we, many... Many are drawn to that, that, that way of loving. Others are not. Some are. We're all so different. So um, that desire, he, he spoke of it in terms of soulmates. I would say it's not romantic. It's a union that by definition has to be so far beyond the ego that there can't be a trace of I want, I need, what to speak of physicality. It, just by definition, it couldn't possibly be there because it would be too, too ego-affirming. You couldn't have that level of union. But it, it's not possible for us to find that soulmate. The soulmate is a spontaneous effect of having reached a certain level of development in which it serves us to find such a person. But it's the development of our soul consciousness that brings that fulfillment. We can't do it alone. And I'm not just speaking metaphysically that we can't do it alone. The law says you have to have a guru, you have to have an intermediary. I'm just talking about us. You know, we just can't do it alone. It's, uh, 
lest our emptiness it prove. You know, in the final analysis, every one of us, we just go down to this place of solitude. Swamiji said something once that you know I can only hear. I can't understand it. I can only hear him say it. He said, when the final moment of liberation comes, he said, for just a moment, when you realize that you are absolutely and eternally solitary, he said, there's a moment of terrible loneliness. Isn't that just, when you realize that this sort of thing we've been fighting all our lives that we actually really are alone proves not merely to be slightly true but absolutely true he said and there's just this terrifying moment of loneliness and then he said but immediately after you realize that that solitude is bliss and then it passes away and you merge into that but when I think about that I think how desperately we run from that aloneness. You know, how, how much of our lives is based on running from that aloneness? And who can comfort you? I, I, friendship at Ananda is, um, like Kamran was saying, it's like angelic. You know, just those of us who've been here a long time or those of you who've just arrived, you know, you... you you never meet people like this, and we have hundreds of them, you know, all over the planet, just hundreds of them. When our groups returned from their uh, gathering in Assisi, I asked uh, someone, what about the international part of it? You know, you'd come from all over the world, and there were six or seven people in front of me when I asked that question. And it was very interesting to watch. This sort of, kind of slightly puzzled look went over their face, and they said, well, it, it never occurred to us. We were so the same in our vibration with Master that something trivial like the language you spoke or where you were born, like, I mean, just, it didn't, it wasn't even that they expanded to overcome it. It never crossed their mind, you know? So we have, I feel, as beautiful as it's ever going to get, and yet all of us still but we aren't alone in that because the Guru is right there. And the, the single relationship, even before the relationship with God, is the one who is going to hold our hand and take us there. And that relationship is actually really so simple. Um, you just have a best friend. It, it's just a best friend. It's not anybody... Yes, of course... The, I mean, when I contemplate Swami's consciousness and read about Master, I don't know even, I can't even begin to think about what it might mean. But I know, like Sister Gyanamata said, and I often quote her, she, she wrote to Master, I know, sir, you came for a world mission, but as far as I'm concerned, you came for me. <laughs> she quoted it a little more graciously. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, it came for me. That didn't mean that he didn't come for all of you. That's the beauty of the whole thing. <laughs> it's not exclusive. But he did come for me. And he came for me in a way that, you know, because we have 
true friends here. We understand what true friendship really is. When I arrived here, I, my friend Durga, who I don't get to see very often, I just woke up fairly early and I realized this was the moment and I just called up and, you know, it's, it, was, it was rather early and she was not really ready for, to receive guests. Hello, Durga! <laughs> After a moment she said, would you like to come over? <laughs> yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> but... It's you know it's a human sweet thing and I I could list I could put a big list of people and I'm sure all of you can people you can call you are always welcome you are never a burden and who you are is just fine and and that's what we have to just meditate on so deeply long we feared to face your love lest our desperate need for it overwhelm us but if we're not willing to go into that place and realize there is I'm absolutely lost without you I'm absolutely lost without you we're afraid to need anything that much because what we have behind us is every time we thought it was going to come through and it didn't so we have to, the, the, the art of this is to discern and to trust and then to experience this one will not disappoint. And every week he has us sing that song. I know, and we can just throw it off easily. People will say to him, I don't understand, what does this song mean? Oh, okay. Well, it, just, just think about it. Sing it for 40 years, see if it changes for you. <laughs> Because you, you can't, I can't, no one can. You can't crack that barrier. But God breaks it from the inside. You know, we, we think it happens from the outside. We, we, we lose what we thought we couldn't live without. You know, we're not given what we desire above all. What we have and have adored goes away. Everything like that. It's not really coming from the outside. What happens is we crack from the inside. And we, we, we discover, we become not afraid of that emptiness. Because then, then when we're not afraid of that emptiness, that's what we say in the purification, the Master says, open your heart to me. Really, what does that mean, open? How many private places do we hold in there? What if we opened our heart? And then he says, I will enter and take charge of your life. If we really did that, let me say it differently, as we do that, as we do that, then you just have this friend in the most... I, I, it's gotten sometimes... I was thinking about future lives as well as this one. I mean, I know some of you think you're not going to have another body. I find it more relaxing to just think I might. <laughs> And if I don't, that's great. But if I do, I'm kind of ready. Um, and I, I sort of think about, because at the present age I am now, the challenges are different than they were when my body was younger, when I was less chronologically developed as I am now. <laughs> and so I anticipate, you know, when, I, when my circumstances are again as I knew they were in this life, Will I be the same? And I think about 
fears and desires and foolishness. And, and I have conversations while I talk to Swamiji. Sir, what are we going to do about that? You know, I, I really don't know how we're going to deal with that one. And it's just that kind of friendship. And in the present, I have certain dilemmas in my responsibilities. I can't, I just can't see the way out of them. I'm in little tiny boxes, and I, and no matter everything I try, I just keep hitting the same small walls. You know, what are we going to do about this? And not, and there's no formality. There's no pieces of me that has to look good. It's like we really are at the end of our rope. What are we going to do about this? Can I come over? (laughs) Yes, of course you can. Because I don't have anything to do but be with you. It's just, it's so sweet. Really think about that. The the Guru has absolutely no priority except you. There's nothing to do. Nothing at all. If you don't call him to do, call him. If you don't call on him, he has nothing to do. I often, in the position that I'm in where a lot of people I relate to, people will say, oh, I didn't want to bother you because you're so busy. I said, nobody calls me. I'm not very busy. (laughs) This is what I do. (laughs) You're not intruding. This is it. But that's how we think about it. You see, we have this deep desire to be loved, understood, and accepted for exactly what we are. And, and the art of discipleship is to realize it's already there. And then not to be afraid of what that might mean, what would happen if. No. We do fear to face our loneliness, but it's God's last challenge to us. But just like Swami said, as he said it, there's an instant of total fear and loneliness. But on the other side of it is bliss. And we just push up against it. It's like the tide. You come right to that edge. It's a little too much. And then we get up, and that's the end of our meditation. Oh, I have to go no, I have to go to the office now. We come right to the edge. Oh, well, it's time to do this. I'll do a few more kriyas. I won't just sit here. You know, just whatever it might be. But just push it and push it. It's just like that heroine in that book. Fire's right in front of you. The light's there, too. When she walked in it, it didn't burn. It looked like it would burn, and it was no small gesture. I, I just read the story. I didn't go into the fire. It was hard to read the story. Just walk into it. And when we back up, you just hold the guru's hands and say, What are we going to do about this? <laughs> You're my best friend, and I'm really scared. What are we going to do? And just as often, Master will say, Let's have tea for a while. <laughs> Let's just talk about something else. <laughs> but then, you know, it's lurking. Time comes takes you by the hand what choice do we have really otherwise we continue as we are which I don't recommend (laughs) and I think that's the last line God bless you (laughs)